said, David, don't be number one. Number two is okay, but never, never be number one. To hear that they're all gone, I pictured someone from Mattel probably came down with their expense account and just bought them all and they're all gonna, you know, now they're gonna experiment on them or something. You're a little paranoid. A little bit. That's a big part of it is planning so far out that the things that could save you don't phase you. Hey, toy family. Welcome to the Marsham Toy Hour, where we discuss anything and everything designer toys. I'm your host, Gary Ham, And usually I have co-hosts, but they're both on holiday break right now, so I am going to go solo. But fear not, it's not just me talking toys to you. I am being joined by an amazing guest. He just happens to be one of my all-time favorite designers. He's a huge inspiration to me, and I know many others. Uh, you guys will definitely know him from Ugly Dolls. He is the co-creator of Ugly Doll along with his wife, Summon Kim. So let's welcome David Horvath. Thanks for joining, David. Hey, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for the favorite shout-out. <laughs> no, but it's absolutely true, though. So I have a little story to tell you. So my first year of ever doing San Diego Comic-Con was in 2003. I went straight to exhibiting. I had never attended before. And just on the other row from us was a toy company called Critterbox. And I, I was floored. I just could Amazing. not stop staring at their booth. I plopped down $45 on my first designer toy purchase, which was a Pippin Norton uh, toy set by Dave Cooper. Uh, still one of my favorite toys in my collection today. And then a couple of days later, my wife at the time swings back by the booth. She had been walking around the convention. And she brought me back one single thing and it was a blue postcard that had wage on it oh. and all it said was hey ugly and i don't i had no idea what it was i had no previous connection with it all i knew was i instantly fell in love with that postcard it made me laugh oh, i love the character and i've been a huge ugly doll fan pretty much since and really not just of ugly dolls of all the properties and all the characters you've created incredible thank you that's wow. That, that, those are the sorts of stories that uh, really do fuel <laughs> when we think like when our when our uh, eyes are bloodshot and, and we don't think we can take one more uh, flight. That's fuel for at least one more. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're, well, you are an inspiration, not just to myself, but so many other designers, because you've created something that's not based on anything else. It's a completely original thing mm -hmm. based on uh, characters that you and some and Kim have created. It's an, your entire world. And. That's one thing that I love so much about designer toys is so much of it is artist driven and not really based on anything else. And the fact that I'm buying anything that you guys have created based purely on aesthetic, like I'm not really deep into the Ugly Doll universe where I know the bios and the stories and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm just buying it just because I like the character designs, I like the characters, and I have tin toys and notepads and ceramic cookie jars and plushes and, and that's amazing that the world has fallen in love with something that you guys have created and that has to be awesome so congratulations on that yes thank you thank you for being so, uh, in so early I, I think that was also our first comic-con i had also never been to comic-con the first time we uh showed there was my first time there we were building Ugly Doll like in the very beginning when I saw my sister come home from the previous Comic-Con, actually at that point working and living on her floor. I had like a little like sleeping bag like right next to her fish tank. And we essentially just sold everything so that I could get Ugly Doll going. So I, I was just there for a little while and she threw down this big bag of postcards. And I thought you guys went to Comic-Con. What are all these postcards? I and mean, the postcards were not really comic book related. 
So I thought Comic-Con was comic books. I've been to comic book conventions <laughs> before. In the 90s, like when we were going to school at Parsons, there was a little mini comic, uh, not Comic-Con, but like a like a comic convention where you could find old Star Wars stuff sometimes, right? Yep. So I thought, wow, these are like um, not just Marvel stuff at all. In fact, she had no Marvel postcards. It was postcards from little uh, like unknown creators. And may maybe they were where the artist alley is, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I thought right away, like, I don't know where you just came from. And I, I then I immediately searched on uh, dial-up uh, <laughs> photos I could wait to see of, like, the event as it, you know, like, we were just like, that was like the end of the last day. And I found some photos from early in, on whatever Friday or preview night or whatever it was. And I thought, this is, we because uh, at the time the plan was only do Toy Fair, but no, we have to do this right after Toy Fair in the summer. We have to do this show. And that was where we met Critterbox, the uh, Connor Libby. Uh, he had a little booth where we were not a part of it. And it was just a little case with Gary's stuff and Tim's figures and a couple other things, I think, uh, the smoking cat. Mm -hmm. And he came over and he said, huh, blah, blah, you know, he introduced himself. And I took a look at his booth and I realized, because I had heard someone whisper the phrase designer toys or art toys. And uh, to me, there was no such thing at the time. To me, it was Pete Fowler working with Sony Creative. The company I was working with on a little TV show in Japan was making toys with artists like Rodney Allen Greenblatt, one of my very favorites from the 80s and, and 90s, and, and Pete Fowler. Mm -hmm. and, and then that and like what was going on in, in, with Hong Kong, like Giant Robot was carrying Michael Lau's Crazy Children. That to me was, there was no name for it. Yeah. But when I heard... Art toys. I actually didn't think that was the right. Then Critterbox. Then it all clicked. That Critterbox actually makes toys of known artists' existing works. Yep. So they weren't just coming up with random out of nowhere ideas. It was like the the lucky rabbit's foot from Gary really was pulled right from a painting. Tim's helper really was pulled right from his actual work. It wasn't like a inspired by or anything. It was like ripped right out of there. Yeah. That's what really grabbed me. Like right away, Connor and I, from the moment we met, we were like either on the phone or face to face daily, like for years. <laughs> and because he, he, I just really uh, connected with what he was after and what I saw Sony Creative doing with Pete Fowler in Japan. And like even the booth that Sony did for Pete at the trade shows in Japan was brilliant. And I think that's why we were talking earlier about Don mentioning in your previous two episodes ago about the history of designer toys. And I think it is important, not important like you must know, but for young creatives out there who are maybe in their like in grade school but want to do this, mm -hmm. I wish there was and there really should be an archive where or too bad there's not a way to see that trade show booth that Pete Fowler had with Sony because those little like half clear bubbles sticking out of the wall had, in my opinion, a lot to do with what uh, Graflex is doing with Disney right now. Like he is sitting there with the 90th anniversary Mickey Mouse killer collaboration of the year right now. Hottest thing in this scene, I think, kind of because of that booth and how Sony Creative decorated it. And I think even like the Frank Kozik level, you might not have given that any thought. But I toil about that stuff, and he toils about a lot of other stuff. But like, uh, so I, I do think that's really important. And I, I wish that at least it were all there. Uh, it's, it's really hard to dig up. And as time goes, 
the old websites and things start to come down and right. Facebook kind of wasn't around then. So a lot of the pre-2005 stuff is sort of absent. Oh, you're not kidding. No, I'm familiar. I do a lot of research when I do these episodes and prep for the for the shows and guests and stuff like that. And yeah, usually anything that's predated 2005, just a lot of broken links, a lot of broken images and stuff. So I'll do my best to find some of these images, but I think they're going to be kind of tough to find, especially the Sony Creative stuff that you're talking that P. Fowler did in Japan. I, that sounds cool, but uh, I don't know if I'll be able to find them. Oh, it's brilliant. It's, it's just the most beautiful thing, at least especially at the time when talk about something coming out of nowhere. And I was blown away that such a you know large company like Sony is at the same time so right on and early, like before almost anybody, right? right. Uh, this is like when Metacom was more focused on making, like they had devil robots and then they were actually making a lot of stuff with Rodney on Greenblatt, who many might not even realize was like one of the grandfathers of designer toys. Parappa the Rapper and before that was his uh, fine artwork. But then he was doing big figures with Metacom when Metacom just started and, yep. and a lot of really great ones. Wow, you're dishing out a lot of history. I don't think a lot of our listeners are familiar with Rodney Allen Greenblatt. They're probably familiar with Parappa the Rapper, but also just Sony Creative. I, that's kind of gone. But I think a lot of people probably didn't know, had no idea that Sony was doing toys at one point. Oh, I, I when I think of designer toys... I think of Sony Creative before I almost think of anyone else. Because I, I guess I just think of my first couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I keep going, and maybe it's just because it was my own personal experience. But what, when I think of designer toys, still I automatically think of Sony Creative and not just Pete Fowler's work, but even, even Dihara had the Vanimal Zoo line that they were doing. Dihara had his pigs and, and the butcher as part of one of those Sony Creative uh, figures. It was, like, it was like today how you have the VAG line, which is like, if you're a creator and you get accepted into Metacom's uh, Vinyl Artist Gotcha series, is like the Academy Award. It's like <laughs> you, it's like the Kingmaker series. You know, like yeah, uh, is it Candy Bolton is the only Westerner so far to get in, and like that's sure. like you know, to me that's like the the equivalent, but even more so because now just more people will know about it. But back when Sony Creative was doing this, I became like, oh my God, I, well I have to I have to have a Vanimal Zoo or I'm nothing. Like I was. We, we were dealing with something much larger over here. And I'm always looking at, at what is seemingly very small and more concerned and worried and, and stressed out over over something like that and also falling in love with it, you know. Right. And you're talking about, I mean, you've been in designer toys since. You're actually one of the early starters. You're one of the first artists to work with Kid Robot and Metacom. And you've worked with, gosh, you know, companies that aren't even around anymore. You mentioned Critter Box and there was Flying Cat and... Sure. Uh, Flying Cat. Uh, Flying Cat. Thanks to Flying Cat, they had our stuff at the Taipei Toys Festival before it was even called that. It was like some other name, like the very earliest version of the Taipei Toy Festival. You know, thanks to Flying Cat and uh, and the reporting of Jim from Strange Co. We had yes. we had stuff in there. Yeah, I think in its first, very first or second, the second year that that when that was ever a thing. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, so when you worked with Flying Cat, you were doing the Nupas at the time, right? And then that was picked up by Critterbox to then distribute them? Yes. Um, when we first started Ugly Doll, I also had a television show that was, wasn't on the air yet, but we had been working on it called Little Boney, which was a collaboration between myself, Sony Creative, and NHK, which is like the national broadcaster in, in Japan. And it was going to be like strictly like a little kid's preschool show. And I had just been focusing on that and mostly on on getting Ugly Doll off the ground. And we had this other website 
um, Nupa was something that came from when I first met Sunmin in the middle 90s at, at art school that I put on this like free HTML website. Okay. And I think I, I did a lot of it in my senior year and I just sort of like forgot about it and left it up. And I think it was when Alan from Flying Cat did a, a whatever it was, it a Google search or a Yahoo search, <laughs> a Yahoo search for me, maybe when he was trying to dig into what little stuff we had coming out from first Ugly Doll. And then uh, maybe it was the very first because uh, like I think I did one of the very first Dunnies with Paul. I don't think mine came out first, but I remember we were at dinner and Paul handed me he pulled something out of his pocket and he said, this is a prototype for something I'm doing called a Dunny like a dumb bunny so I, I i held it and i accidentally dropped it in my soup uh so there's the story about like the old dunnies and then suddenly it changed where there's ears and they're not attached and they're attached so i my apologies uh but but <laughs> so he right away said i'm going to send you some illustrator files and just you you know you so the the two-faced thing i just did right away i think he waited to release them a little later those are the results of me just not knowing what I'm doing in Illustrator. Yeah. But I was very happy that he asked me to do them. And, yeah. and I think I had a, a bigger kick doing the packaging and the display uh, artwork than the actual the, the shapes. Uh, I, I had more fun with the backs of the head, which is why they were two-faced, because I didn't know what to do with the big lump in the mouth. So I just, <laughs> you got to turn the heads backwards, and then that's like the actual face. Yeah, you're not the only one that struggled with the lump on the face. I've seen people do stuff on the backside, too. Uh, but then Fly, uh, Alan from Flying Cat did a web search and he wrote an email to me through that old website that was all this nupa illustrations and little animations from my from school okay and he said uh, i would like to make these into toys and i said okay uh well i you know i i had very little information about what was i kind of had a grasp of what was happening there was like superman toys in Mongkok and hong kong and there was all these weird kind of rivalry things happening between like Raymond at Toy 2R and Flying Cat and, and or, or they were friends or they were enemies or frenemies or whatever, <laughs> whatever was happening. There was a funny like drama thing happening slowly right. over dial up, right? Yep. So I saw, okay. Uh, yeah. So I just sent him the, the drawings. I had like all these character turnarounds and just a bunch of information from that I developed while I was in school. Really, it was me just exercising, drawing in, in um, everything was an illustrator just because it was drawn in Flash 4. Because you could draw in Flash 4 with a Wacom tablet oh, yeah. and turn it into an Illustrator drawing, which then they got rid of, so I couldn't draw an Illustrator anymore. Uh, <laughs> I started I was, out the same way, yeah. So they, so I sent those to him, and I didn't know he was going to do it, but then he sent me a like kind of like a same, like a Dunny template, like, can you apply all these guys onto just this one body? Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, but can you add horns on the head? Because Nupa had like little... Like he had like 17 years or whatever it was, the gross things. So yeah, so th- those were more of a result of me just applying existing Illustrator files right onto the, from the turnaround art, right onto his blank. There's a lot of toys in that Nupa series too. Wasn't there like 20 plus figures in that series? Yeah, yeah. He he wanted to go all out. Uh, yeah. So we, we did those and then Critterbox picked them up. Uh, Critterbox actually, uh, yeah, was the distributor for Flying Cat, but then he wanted them repackaged. He felt like the way that uh, Flying Cat had it, he wanted to do it a little differently, which I guess it worked. Both versions kind of made their way to the U.S. eventually, but those did really well. I mean, those, for at least for us, uh, I mean, we were very happy that they were well-received in, in Asia. Uh, but then I guess for Connor, they, they seemed to do 
they do pretty well until Critter Box sadly just went away. You know, very sadly, they produce some of the best toys and honestly some of the best packaging for toys in the business. And they only lasted a few years. But you've already touched on some history that you've had with companies, Toy Toir, Wonderwall, Kid Robot, Critter Box. But let's rewind a bit more and go back to how you met your wife and co-creator of Ugly Doll, Sunman Kim. Okay. I've heard the origin story always. It's always told as a love story. I guess you guys are both students of Parsons School of Design in New York. And one day you walked into illustration class and you saw a beautiful woman woman that caught your eye and uh, like most guys you found a way to kind of get seated next to her and I heard maybe you stalked her for a year as well but but in the end you got the girl and ugly doll came out of it but I know there's a lot in between that story so can you tell us more about that and Sunman came and how you met her and all that stuff oh uh, well the year the year was her just uh I mean I don't even know if that was a okay thing now. I mean, I kind of just pestered her for a year. <laughs> I, I, I sat down next to her right away. Our first conversation ever was about ugly. Like I saw her, you know, she, we were drawing like a nude model and they had an actual naked person with like fruit or something yeah. posed in the middle of the room and everyone's in a giant circle. Uh, and I had just left product design, the, the product design department. Uh, I went there originally because I thought I wanted to tell stories through toys, but I realized quite quickly I definitely did not want to be a product designer because I didn't want to design like uh, other products like shelving units and, and coffee cups. And I, and I didn't want to really be a toy designer working at a toy company. I wanted to just use toys as a storytelling vehicle more. Right. Like, Your mom worked at Mattel as a toy designer though. Yeah. Well, she would, that's what she told us. She was a super, <laughs> super good employee. So they had a pretty strict secrecy uh, rule and we would see her work in catalogs. And then once they hit the Mattel store, she'd be you know, allowed to show us. She was super good about not telling us a thing. Like really. Wow. She was, yeah, <laughs> so, she uh, honored the NDA agreement, huh? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, she really did. So I, I actually had no idea. I, I knew she worked at Mattel. I, I've seen like a couple purple He-Mans and weird melted, uh, you know, like more, more like her buddies when they would come over would bring <laughs> like purple He-Man. Like just cast in one color with like weird pink outfits, but not not my mom, no, never. Huh. Uh, and she had one prototype she was allowed to take. It was from a toy line she invented called Cherry Mary Muffin, and I used to ask her why in the world, you know, the the prototype looks so great and it's so beautiful, but that the the final product was kind of mad. Uh, <laughs> you don't see that much of a difference now. Now I think the regular toys by Hasbro are like the best, some of the best things you'll ever see. Oh yeah, walking the toy aisle today, it's just it's impressive. I'm jealous of the toys that my kids have, but I distracted you talking about your mom there. So going back and talking about how you met Sun Min Kim. Yeah. So so when I well, I went to uh, illustration class, there was Sun Min. I sat next to her immediately, just on the on the shallow level, like ooh, amazing. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I sat down next to her, and she's making this like photorealistic, perfect drawing of of the model, and I can see the teacher coming around. Uh, I was you know, I was like 20 minutes late or something. So I, I got with it. And within 20 seconds, I was done. I, I just drew uh, a monster, like not even a monster, <laughs> but like basically what an ugly doll, like what you see now. That's yeah. the only way I've known how to draw since I was six. I didn't really advance since then. Uh, but in the exact pose, but, <laughs> but of, you know, so the lady uh, goes up to Simon and, oh, this beautiful darling. Oh, my goodness. You know, praise. And then she goes over to me and she says, oh, ugly. <laughs> That's I never forget. Like that's the only word that came out of her mouth, and I, I, I thought she was going to say like, "What are you doing? You know, take this more seriously." Talk. I was ready for that, uh, but <laughs> no, she just said "ugly." 
So, you know, being a, a smart aleck that I was, and I said, uh, hey, you know, but what is ugly? Ugly is the only real beauty we have. You know, my dad works in advertising. I happen to know for a fact that beauty is nothing more than a marketing <laughs> term. And ugly is what is, like, it's the things inside us that we shouldn't be changing and altering and, and, and surgically altering and cutting up. We should be shouting those things from the rooftops. That's what it's all about. That is the real beauty. And the lady's like, you're full of shit. <laughs> oh, so, I, I think we had the exact same teacher. My life drawing teacher was the exact same way. Well, she was, you know, well, as you know, then they don't, you know, they don't, they don't buy the explanation for a second. So nope. she, she was off to the next kid and pretty much that was it. I, I don't know what I got. I don't know if I passed that class, but so did you, you know, just keep drawing the monsters and just add a little more shading or do you end up doing like more life drawing stuff that she was expecting? Yeah, it turns out that it's a six hour class. So I went through a lot of paper, like the way <laughs> I draw, I'm done in two seconds. I'm done. I'm ready for lunch. Right. And, and I never really tried to adjust. Like I, you know, that was it. That really was the way I drew the entire thing. Uh, great school. And I learned a lot from other instructors more about how to conduct myself and about work, work ethic and, and uh, belief. Uh, but not not so much the skill because uh, I just don't have any. Uh, but you know, Sunman leaned over and she said, "You know that whole thing about ugly? I thought that was pretty interesting." I, and I, yeah, I said, I, "I'm you know I'm just I'm just BSing her. That I don't know, I don't even remember what I said." She <laughs> said, "No, no, actually, that the part about where you said it's actually the real beauty and that uh, that's very interesting." And then she started like writing down stuff, and we just started talking about that, and we talked about that at lunch or something, and and. From there, we sort of slowly started to develop the what we now call the ugly verse. You know, what you first read about in the Random House books years ago, that was like what we came up with when we met, right? That whole conceit and the the, the humor, sensibility, and that that was kind of like us needing to get all that out before anything else. And then I just, yeah, I just chased her around for, I don't know if it took a whole year, but we, yeah, we've been uh, together ever since. I love that story, though, but eventually you guys ended up having to separate because she was here on a student visa from Korea, and then mm -hmm. at, at the end of the school year, she had to go back to Korea, and then you moved on to work for Toys International? Oh, no, this was that was years before. I My only job, really, that I ever had was um, working at – well, I, originally I was going to Art Center, and I left Art Center with after, like, a couple weeks. Um, I was there for advertising. I was there because I believed what I was told, that I was going to have to just go to Art Center – because there is no such thing as just making your own toys, especially in 1992, there was none of that, right? Right. Um, Todd McFarlane proving everybody wrong was not was still years away. Uh, so I quit uh, Art Center to go work at this toy store. I really wanted to learn the ins and outs of what back then was a specialty toy store that not Toys R Us and not these other uh, big toy stores and chains, but like what about, you know, these small toy stores really were intriguing to me. Like, why do they have things that I can't find anywhere else? And where do these things come from? And what are these companies that are making these things? What is who what's LGB trains and what are Corolla dolls? And what is the Steve or Steiff uh, plush from Germany? Like, well, how come that's here, but not anywhere else? And how do they get their products? Because I know that Kenner has like a twenty thousand dollar per skew order minimum. So like how how do they even have Star Wars figures there? Right. Like so that sort of thing always bothered me. So I just went there to learn. That became kind of like my school for three years. And then from there, realized I've absorbed everything I could possibly absorb. And I saw that whole business actually kind of getting ready to go away. So wow. that's when I decided to go off to Parsons. 
Okay. So Sun and Kim goes back to Korea after school. You stay back here in the States. And at the time, there's no cheap way to affordably call one another via international calls. There was no Skype. So you guys wrote letters back and forth. How many letters did you guys write? Or how long was the period of time that it took for you to see her again? Oh, there weren't that many because what she yes, she uh, it was her student visa expired. She had to go back to Korea, which was devastating for me. So it was actually the very first letter that I wrote to her when she left that I, I wrote a letter like, don't worry, we'll figure out how to make this whole thing that we wanted to do happen. I knew for sure that, you know, the only way I was really going to ever see her again. I mean, I could have moved to South Korea as an English teacher. After going to school in New York for four years, I, I, I didn't have a penny to my name. Like I, 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 I didn't even know how I would, you know, get a, a, a flight to even just go visit her or see her. Yeah. But I, I realized that this talk I've been doing since I was six, you know, this, this big talk about doing it on my own and, and making my own toys and telling stories through toys. And then after that, you know, Sunman and I dreaming of, of doing what we did do, I realized the only way I was really going to be able to be with her was to actually make that happen, that really for for me to be able to 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 continue our our you know this, this person I, I can't be without and the only way i can be with her is to make all that big stuff we talked about actually come true so that was sort of that was it and and from realizing that i i wrote her a letter don't worry we're gonna absolutely make this happen and the little wage guy at the bottom of the letter was more like a self-portrait of him putting on an apron like getting ready to get to work right put it in the mailbox. And then I was like, I have no idea how in the world, how that's going to happen. It was a promise in a letter that's yeah. in a stamp. And I was like, well, I, I knew I was going to do it. Uh, and I was ready to like never sleep again. But I was like, well, okay, well, so what's the first step? Really quickly after that, I received a box from Korea and it was a plush doll of that little guy with the apron. And, and someone didn't know how to sew. She'd never attempted sewing. He's actually the second uh, attempt. There was a first attempt, which was like an orange blob of the same fabric. The second attempt was the finished wage ugly doll that you can uh, still buy, right? Uh, yeah. It's been unchanged ever since, for the most part, right? And uh, I opened it, and my, you know, I'm my paranoid self right away, like someone ripped me off, and I thought, oh wait, <laughs> no, because that was just on one letter, and no, because you can't rip off. Because nobody knows you, <laughs> so so I thought, oh my God, Sunman made this for me, or maybe had someone make it for me. Yeah, I read the you know she put it like a little I made this for you. Yeah. So she was still sleeping. It's like 3 a.m. in Korea. So I ran to a giant robot store which just opened, and we were in when we were in school. Uh, the only magazine that I could afford, in the, or you know, go to the Virgin Mega Store and just read it for free. Sorry, Eric, but uh, the, the <laughs> giant robot magazine. So when the store opened, it was like right down the street from us. And uh, we, 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 I was in L.A. at the time. And it was like a physical embodiment of the magazine. It was amazing. Like like yeah. that he captured, like you felt like you're standing inside the pages of Giant Robot. It was not like a store owned by the guy. It was like it was Giant Robot. It yep. was I, like I couldn't believe that, like, like even the smell of the place somehow was right. Like it was just perfect. So I ran in there and I showed him because he was the only one who will know what in the world I'm talking about. So he was the closest person who would understand why I would be uh, excited about such a thing. And he goes, yeah, cool, man. Hey, you know, I'll take 20. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, all right, man. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
so finally, when it was like 6 a.m. in Korea, I called her and I said, hey, thank you. And I, I you know, we need 20 more. And I explained <laughs> to her, you know, she didn't even have a sewing machine. That was all like around the whole body by hand. Oh, wow. So she was excited because she she also knew about Giant Robot. She knew that I was super excited about it. And as I'm talking to her on the phone, I'm also explaining. And because I'm just I'm, it's just occurring to me. Not only do we love this place and we love it because it's like the the physical embodiment of the magazine we love. And it has this kind of soul that is so rare in retail now. And this was like, you know, 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. But he has this funny stuff by this artist that I was introduced to by my friend Toshiki, who owns Zaka in New York City. Uh, okay. In the 90s, I, I would frequent this one place called Zaka in New York City. Uh, and this uh, the owner's name was Toshiki. And he would, every time I go in there, he would say, oh, come meet this new up and coming artist. I want to introduce you to him. He's going to have a little show here. His name is Dihara, Yukinori Dihara. That's the first time I met Dihara. And he had like his little sculptures on the wall. He was doing like, um, I think it was like a Yakuza theme. This was like in like 98 or 99. Okay. Uh, so like that's the first time I met Dihara, who I still you know, see as much as I can when I'm in Japan or if he's able to come out here or we just saw each other in, in Taipei. And then, and then the next week he's like, oh, you just missed him. But there, here's this uh, guy, Takashi Murakami. He just dropped off his T-shirts. Wow. So I, so I started to get like kind of like that guy would turn me on to certain creatives who were he felt were like, you know, really doing great work. So, but then that was in New York and a giant robot, I realized he had a lot of like originals from Dihara, like, oh, wow. And he had like a Takashi Murakami plush that had a watch coming out of its neck. So I thought, Sunman, we have to make more of these because we will have put the plush in that store. Because if our characters exist in that store and Eric's asking us for 20 of them, for me, it's we're existing in this kind of same universe. And I felt like this is the universe I want us to exist in. I don't know who these guys, you know, like Dihara, he's already been a favorite of mine at this point, but you know, for years and years and we've become friendly over maybe even email a couple of times and a couple of times I've, I've met him in the States. Uh, And and there was a lot of other work there at giant robot that was very early, Uh, like from devil robots, the, the tofu, uh, right. Yep. Very familiar. And just just a lot of the cr- creators that we deeply admired, uh, Giant Robot was tapped into those, like Jay Otto Siebold, uh, Rodney Allen Greenblatt, all the stuff that Sony was doing, all the stuff Metacom was doing super early, early on with Devil Robots, like Evil Rob. And it just, it felt like that was the place where these need to call home, like that they need to be found here. Right. Uh, so we dropped up, she made 20, uh, you know, it took her a while. I dropped them off at Giant Robot and in really like a day, they were all gone. Wow. And I was horrified. It was the hor- most horrible thing. Because <laughs> Why is I that? <laughs> think that those, I didn't think that those 20 were the last thing. I thought those were just like, we'll have them at Giant Robot. And then I will use that as a somehow next step because there's an association with all the other amazing stuff that's in there. And somehow I can formulate something where I can send somebody down there at the right time on the right day to take a look and find our stuff there next to the other things and maybe i know a couple people who when they see those things next to each other get a bright idea and then that's the next step yeah but to hear that they're all gone i pictured someone from mattel probably came down with their expense account and just bought them all and they're all gonna you know now they're gonna experiment on them or something (laughs) Uh, you're a little paranoid yeah a little bit but but well (laughs) rightfully so as we would see well yeah but you didn't you didn't know that at the time though 
but 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 uh, but but it went, luckily luckily Sunman was like okay okay I'm gonna buy a sewing machine let's like make 40 of them surely you know and he he Eric's like hey we need more man yeah get more like like it's nothing right <laughs> and like nothing I say yeah and then I call Sunman and beg beg her you know okay look double the order <laughs> 20 more of the wage we'll add his best friend Babo and you know, the 20 and 20, and then those will sit around forever because the guy's not coming back. Whoever wiped this out, that stinks. And Eric <laughs> set up a little, like, camera. He's like, yeah. dude, I set up a camera in the store. You can actually go home and watch the store the whole day, and you can see who buys them. <laughs> That's awesome. So, like, two weeks later, I dropped those off, and I'm waiting. You know, Eric's helping a customer. It's Kate Capshaw, Spielberg's wife. And she turns around, and she's like, what are these? I love these. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> No, these just have to go straight to the shelf. Like, no, don't. So, <laughs> fortunately, she didn't like them that much. Uh, not yet, anyway. Put it back and on the shelf. She liked Target, the one with all the hairs. So I think Bill was working that day and said they weren't processed yet or he could see the fear in my eyes. So uh, <laughs> we set them up on the shelf perfectly, and I ran back home, really ran, like, on foot, and and dial up AOL watched the giant robot feed <laughs> to see who would be the one to like to wipe it out yeah wipe it out again but this time it, we I realized that well they they sold out in two days that's pretty good but it was like forty different people each bought one of them yeah that's uh, fantastic and that freaked me out. So then we went from there, really. It was that second drop-off that then, you know, I, I, I used the instant messenger. By now we were chatting with AOL, instant messenger texting. And I, I waited for a little, you know, you can see the person log on. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. <laughs> the door open or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I think I, I took pictures of my screen of the people buying it with like an old camera <laughs> that then I could, you know, tell her about, but that was it. Like, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> I, lo I love that story of like, you're actually sitting there watching, making sure it was individual people purchasing it. That's great. So it only took a few years from when you guys started first making that hands-on plush in 2001 to you had sold your 1 millionth plush by 2008. So how do you go from that small starting out stage a yes. giant robot to then getting employees and mass production and getting them in stores all over the world. How do you oh, make yeah. that leap? Well, it was, it was, it was, it's not that long of a story. It was Sunmin sewing, uh, 1000. I don't want to inflate the number. I feel like every time I do an interview, it gets bigger, but it was like, <laughs> I, I think I have been saying 1200. I think it is realistically 1200. Maybe I said 1500 on some other thing. Okay. A painful number, you know, pain, painful number. For uh, her, yeah. We would drop off 40 or 50 or 20 at a time, whatever she could manage. And it was a giant robot. And then it was Zaka, that place I mentioned in New York City. And then it was Plastica, another shop later in Los Angeles, uh, but more like West Hollywood. It was like a funky museum style children's store. And then uh, I think it was Few Many in Tokyo. Or there was a furniture store before, a few many. I don't remember on Cat Street, but but there was one or two little shops in, in Tokyo. Few many was a like our giant robot in in uh, Japan early on. Mm -hmm. They were a pretty big part of it, especially for Asia early on in the day, okay. and still work with them. Um, so just dropping off like 
as many as we possibly could at a time and they would just sell out like r r quickly. So $1,200 later, Sunmin said, look, um, we need to make these for real because I, I, my, I can't, I can't move my fingers. <laughs> I, yeah. Like I'm using a sewing machine and my mom's sitting here cutting eyeballs and this is amazing <laughs> that they work so well in so few places. And we got like some press in the first, it was like a local paper in, in, the, in, in Manhattan beach, California, and then giant robot. Eric wrote a couple art, uh, I think our the first article. And then that led to, um, it didn't get run into way later, but like already New York Times wanted to write something. And I thought, okay, well, then we have to go to, we have to make these for real and we have to go to Toy Fair. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So Toy Fair, February 2003 was where we showed up with kind of prototype production versions of her handmade stuff. Right. And, okay. and they're pretty much the same. Uh, we found a factory that was in Korea. It's a, a Korean factory that she just found locally she found this fabric, this type of fabric that was going to be uh, no longer made. And it, it kind of looked like polar fleece, but it was a little fuzzier and it had a lot of like black mixed in it. Little and speckles. the guy who was done with that whole business was like, this is not for making dolls. In fact, this is not for making anything. I'm not even going to make this anymore. <laughs> and she's like, yes, you will. I want that. That's what I want. <laughs> Yeah, so we went gangbusters on on the fabric, and and um, we showed up at Toy Fair, not really sure what to expect because it was kind of like this weird leap. At the same time, I moved to New York City. I got a illegal apartment in in an industrial building in uh, Dumbo, in Brooklyn, in like this da dangerous, dangerous, bad area. Which now I looked on just recently, and it's like I should have just bought that building. Oh yeah, you should have. Hell yeah. Like a little place <laughs> where I was living now, it's okay to live there, and it's like a billion dollars. It's crazy. Been gentrified now. But but this was Dumbo when it was like 2003 Dumbo uh, near J Street. But if you were on the um, Manhattan Bridge, you could see a giant cutout of Wage that I screwed up on the print. So he was in my window. You could see it from the bridge for the first year. Uh, so I was there, and I just went up and down every avenue in Manhattan from the financial district to 92nd and Madison. And I found any shop that was not a toy store where I felt that ugly doll might belong and walked into them cold with like a, you know, like, like toy, toy Tokyo was one of those stops. The enchanted forest in Soho was one. Like there was many shop Oh, forbidden planet was like a no brainer. I grew up, with Forbidden Planet you know, in New York City as a child. Uh, so they said yes, luckily. Uh, so we were very fortunate. We, we found these places, like Forbidden Planet was really like the only, like Barney's New York. Like now I know, like you can't walk into these places cold like that, but I didn't know. So I think it was, I just did it. And I bothered every single, like Lev wasn't that bothered, but it, pretty much everyone else was kind of bothered. Yeah, yeah. That's not the way to roll, I guess. It's maybe even especially now. I don't know. It doesn't yeah, matter. People aren't fans of soliciting, I guess. Yeah, but maybe this was like, you know, this was still dial-up days. So maybe it was okay. <laughs> we didn't all have iPhone yet. I don't know. The word didn't get out that that works. Yeah. So quickly. Uh, I did not. Oh, I met the most resistance, like um, way down, like where A-Life and those stores used to be. Uh, I didn't go in there, but the, the similar... Like actually, there was a there was a Jaquan had 360 toy before any of this stuff popped up, right? He was kind of like the first designer toy. Like he had a lot of James Jarvis stuff and early cause and 
and that sort of thing. Okay. I didn't ask him. He had his own soul and his own thing going on there. But other others around there uh, kind of resisted. But like furniture, designy furniture stores and these kind of places were pretty good with it. So I just went up and down these places and told them that I'd be at Toy Fair and I gave them uh, samples. Uh, but that first Toy Fair, we just kind of stood there and we were in the least expensive booth in the very bottom level in the back corner by, you know, where Mattel goes to the bathroom. And that, that <laughs> like the Mattel did have like this other distribution booth there that blocked our view. And then they really did have a special exit where their staff could then quickly go to bathroom. Oh my gosh. I just remember, Big booth blocking my view, Mattel logo, bathroom door. <laughs> but then everybody found us, like little shops from Hawaii and Alaska. And like the exact little types of shops that I was hoping we would attract came out of nowhere and all placed orders. Fantastic. I think that's where I first met Paul Budnitz in person also. I, we, we had been selling a couple of the handmade stuff where he... He told us he was going to open up a store in Soho, or maybe he just did. I don't remember, but I remember that was the first time we met him, and he was really excited. And um, we we just, I think we just from there, it from there it just took off. And yeah, 2008, the first millionth one, the first millionth one of just Ox, you know, was 2008. It was uh, it, it was funny because we were not mass, but I felt like we were making way more toys than I thought we would have had we been in the mass market. You know, at the time, it was it was a bizarre place to be that quickly. Bizarre, but it sounds amazing. I can't believe how fast you guys grew. And I also had no idea that you were cold walking in the stores in New York City. Like, Mark Cuban would absolutely love you. He loves that grassroots stuff. But I just, it's still baffling how fast you guys grew. From a ham sewn plush starting out in 2001 to $2.5 million in sales by 2006, and then you mentioned the one million sale of just Ox alone by 2008, and I know in 2009 that's kind of when like uh, you became a national, uh, a media story because Sasha Obama was seen taking an ugly doll to school. Snoop Dogg was seen with it. Like news markets are talking about you. I know you were mentioned on the Today Show with Kathy LeGivert, and it's just plush at that time. It primarily you guys were breaking barriers pretty much. You took kind of took that stigma off of plush because. Boys and girls were seen taking ugly dolls to school, and adults, both male and female, were seen buying ugly dolls. So that's amazing. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a, a quite a ride, and it, it was uh, interesting because we didn't really even want to be a toy company, uh, really. And and later, like in two thousand thirteen, we switched to a, a licensing model just because. That being being in that sort of production for that long and, and having a very long term plan, I, I just I, I felt like there eventually uh, there was not really a disconnect, but that the plan was too long and far out and to suddenly have that much interest. Then we started talking about, like, I wonder if it's important for some of this to go away a little bit. Like, you know, like the toy store where I used to work at Toys International, uh, which is gone, sadly. But where I worked in the 90s, uh, there was a strong belief there that every great toy, if it became a great toy, had seven years. That was like your ticking clock. And it was weird because they would like move stuff to the back. And I would say, why are you why are we moving stuff back here? This thing is super hot. It's like, yeah, but it's in its sixth and seventh year. So we're going to start to like slow down the orders. We're ahead of the curve. 
I'm like, well, wait a minute. If you're anticipating this happening and this is a known thing and you're moving the hot stuff to the back and ordering less of it, you're not anticipating the curve. You're, 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 you're making, this is your curve. (laughs) Yeah. So that sort of thing was fascinating to me also. And I always, I always kind of had that in the back of my mind too. So we, we were really careful about not like we wanted to be everywhere. And yet at the same time, we were kind of nowhere uh, where the mass still, maybe they're just now finding out about us for the first time. It, re- it really is a big leap. You think something is everywhere, but when you're at specialty, it's still a big leap to go from what you perceived as being everywhere to actually being known by everyone. Is is a, There's a lot of uh, space to play between there there. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then you just mentioned being a specialty. I know in 2006, actually the night before Toy Fair, there's the toy industry does an award ceremony and Ugly Doll actually won the specialty toy of the year. And that must have been absolutely fantastic for you guys and probably played a large role in setting you on your path. That was a uh, that was amazing. Yeah, I think to be taken seriously at Toy Fair was a, a big shock to me uh, uh, that that had been uh, a big dream of mine and like but a dream not like a goal even but like uh in my dreams it was in the impossible category you know because i didn't i I always wanted to make toys and i never wanted to not be making toys but i didn't want to be a toy designer same thing with sunmin we wanted to just use them as vehicles for storytelling so at the same time we were huge fans of everything that we saw coming out of toy fair like wooden puzzle makers coming out of Scandinavia were like our heroes as much as the guys at Kenner, right? Doing the shadow mm-hmm. were our heroes. Like we were in love with the process and we were in love with the the creators behind it. We, I was in love with like the business behind it and the business people in the toy business and what they have to deal with and that dynamic. It's all just like, I'm a fanboy of, the reason, you know, why did you guys go in this direction? Why didn't you, you know, why did you rebrand as this? Like the the business stuff that never sees the light of day is like my, the equivalent of like a, a 12 back uh, Star Wars figure from 1977. <laughs> That's the stuff that I really loved so much. Yeah. I don't know why it was always like that. But so to be recognized at Toy Fair was really a, a real privilege. I, 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 I certainly never forget it. I, I, I felt like it was, um, cause it, I, I didn't, even though we were there every year, I didn't feel like that was our world. I didn't feel like that we were part of that. Right. I mean, talking about that paranoia a little bit, when you do win an award like that, I mean, a lot more companies are taking notice, more independent producers are taking notice. And now you're going to start seeing other independent producers solely start wanting to do what you're doing, borrowing from your brand. So how often would you see something that looked ugly dollish or something like you created on an Etsy store? And how did you have to protect your brand from mm. other companies stepping into your world too much? The the fun stuff was like there was a major pet store chain, one of the biggest ones. And they just straight up had Ice Bat, Wage, and Bobo pet toys for Halloween God, um, one year. That, that was great like that felt so good <laughs> I bet. i've never achieved like the box of seven spider man the spader man but then there's one buzz light year in it like I'm, i didn't get to that level yet uh, like <laughs> where, where, where we're there on you know on elizabeth 
at the uh, on a you know like a fake like a full fake but being knocked off and being at, at that that giant pet chain uh which it was one of the two i don't remember anymore but we we called you know we just called the main guy and it was like just a, a you know a freelancer did that and it goes under the radar of the right. man that that sort of thing was fine because we were more like wow this is awesome man and we just call them and it goes away and and then that's totally fine how over the years how many cnds do you think you guys have had to send out for stuff like that uh yeah so many uh so many not not so much anymore uh, but so many, and it was just because, well, maybe I was too informed or not informed enough. We would hear like, oh, well, you, you, you can't not go after some of them because if you don't go after some of them, it's the same as not going after any of them and you're, you know, putting your whole thing at risk. So, right. you, but, but they never got it right. You know, they never really got it right because they always thought it was either something about monsters, which I, I, we, <laughs> Like I've never, those Alitals are not monsters, right? Right. So, to, or to me, they were not, they're not monsters and they're like, uh, there's something else. And, or, or they would um, think that it's about the shape or they would think it's about this or they think, they would kind of like pull what they thought was the thing that if they just bit on that, that they could do what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, but then they would stick it in a place where it didn't belong. So like, they never got all of the ingredients. It's like ripping off just the pepperoni but not doing the crust or the cheese. Yeah, you know? they had like, the wand, but not the magic. I get it. I guess so. Yeah, like they, 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 they would take bits and parts, and but and and we could tell, like, eh, well, we could if we weren't a business, we could just let it go because I can tell you, it's not going to last more than just like uh, you know, like three months. But we went after all of them and still do quite aggressively. That sure is expensive, by the way. <laughs> I, I I bet I bet I can I can only imagine what your lawyer bills are like and your retainers and all that sort of stuff. But you gotta do what you gotta do to protect your brand. I mean, you've developed quite the reputation for it. Speaking of which, it's our time to pay the bills. So for all your designer toy needs, wants, and desires, we have three amazing stores for you. First up is 3DRetro.com. 3D Retro has a beautiful brick and mortar location out there in beautiful Southern California, Burbank adjacent. And 3D Retro is also an amazing producer of designer toys as well. You, sh- I mean, their name is synonymous with fine art toys and art objects. So uh, they're definitely a company to be aware of and a store to shop at. And next up is our longest-running sponsor, StrangeCatToys.com. We love StrangeCatToys.com. Corey's awesome. Lickety split, he'll respond to you. Great customer service. So if you want to go to StrangeCatToys.com, load up that cart, and you can use our promo code MARSHAM at checkout, and he will give you 10% off your entire order. And then going from our longest to our newest sponsor, My Plastic Heart. My Plastic Heart is a store located in New York City, but if you can't make it, you can still go online and visit myplasticheart.com. If you happen to live in the United States and spend $75 or more, use our promo code TOYFAM at checkout and you'll receive free shipping on that order. And to stay on top of all the latest and greatest releases and current events going on in our toy scene, be sure to like and follow spankystokes.com and thetoychronicle.com. And if you haven't done so already, do yourself a favor and download the Toy Chronicle app at any one of your favorite app stores. 
Okay, David, I want to kind of rewind and go back and talk where you're talking about how you were being careful early on, how you were perceived to be everywhere but really nowhere at the same time. You never really went mass, mass market where you where we saw you in Walmarts and Targets and parents and grandparents and you were just known all the while around the world. It, it seemed like you were probably that brand, but in the grand scheme of things, you kind of weren't. Uh, you know, we did see you on the shelves of Toys R Us and FAO Schwartz and, and stuff like that, but... How did you avoid the temptations of probably going in that direction, going mass market into the big box stores? And when you really started taking off, were you ever approached by the larger companies just to buy you out altogether? Um, well, we've been approached by the very big. So that was the hardest part, I think, was our first few years of Ugly Doll and just having no money, right? And no, like wanting to start a family or even having uh, kids on the way. Right. Yep. Uh, and then having one of these major stores come and say, hi, we'd like to place this order like the paper slides across the table. And, you you know, it's a no. Uh, <laughs> you don't have no, the capital. But, we, but it's 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 no for reasons that we usually don't discuss. I mean, I actually love Target and Walmart. And if you follow me on Instagram or, you know, whatever, wherever it was, Giant Robots main page used to feed to a blog that I used to do before any social media came along. But like most of the places where I freak out and, and, and find things that I love are actually at those places. Mm -hmm. So those places always did have a place in our long-term play, especially when we saw um, like the timing maybe shifted in our long-term play, but it not, not the, the theory we, we knew for sure that specialty the way we knew it, like the way I, the specialty I was in love with in the 90s was not going to be around, right? Um, there still is Star Toys in Brentwood. The store, the toy store that from my childhood in Los Angeles was Toyorama, Toys International, and Star Toys. Okay. Star Toys is still there. It's like in, in Brentwood, there's a building. It's like got a facade in the front. It's shaped like a castle, or I think it's still there. It was still there as of a couple of years ago. I you should check Google Maps, but maybe maybe they are gone. Uh, I hope they're still there. But they're like the last of the 70s, 80s, 90s uh, toy shops, as far as as far as I know. Mm -hmm. Like those, the places where we fell in love with all of this are mostly gone. Uh, at the same time, we love like the shadow from Kenner is like one of my favorite lines of all time. And I, you know, I, I, when, when Brian from super seven first showed off those original prototypes from the Kenner alien, uh, line, I just thought that was brilliant. And I, I loved it that he sought out the people who did the artwork for it. Uh -huh. And like the love that he has for everything that he's doing right now, the He-Man stuff. And uh, these are all things that are from the mass market that are, not really specialty, that they're huge, right? Yep. But I realized that, you know, and, but the, so we, we, it wasn't really about saying, we, we were saying no to the very big guys, which was difficult because it was like, wow, I'm a bad father. This, this <laughs> may never, how do we know this will last another year? Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. And we had this like decades long plan all the way knowing that this may not last six more months, right? That's right there is what I hope to touch on when I'm older or maybe starting now. Maybe I am older, but I wanted to kind of relay that to young creative people or people who are young and think that they want to chase their creative side versus doing something safer. Mm -hmm. And 
I, now I'm getting away from my answer, but that getting that early on when you know you have a plan and having facing that, even if you have a kid on the way and then saying no to it, it's hard to advise others to do the same and to have that much belief in your long-term plan because that money could, if, if handled the right way, could ensure the, the, a lot of safety for the health of your baby. Sure, right? sure, yeah. Like it's, there's so many things that enter your mind that you have to make a call on in 20 seconds when this person enters your space, <laughs> right? Uh, so you're able to deal with that by already committing to a plan beforehand. Assuming that all these great things were happening, you have to kind of have the audacity to think that they would even come into your booth, right? Right, you right. have to be ready for all of that stuff and assume that it's going to attract that much attention. I think it's like the placebo effect that if you assume without looking like you assume or acting like you assume, but but in a weird way, uh, which was always offset by my paranoia anyway, so it was okay. I think I never came across as someone who assumes that they'd be back. But sure, when, and they came back year after year. And um, it wasn't no because of who they were. It was just, it's not the right time. We want to exist in this space that we're in. Like, this is this is the right space. And as long as this space exists, we need to be in it only. And then that space actually did change drastically. Not, not just from store closures, but from how consumers changed and yeah. how people have changed and like how they even think about characters and products and what is special and and specialty doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore mm -hmm. uh, some older uh like uh, store owners who i'm very friendly with who who owned a lot of these stores and i know personally are like don't look at that in a very positive way like yeah what do they know but then but i don't know but then the younger people coming up today um they think of special as coming from another place entirely yeah so the big places that you mentioned were not in any way the enemy or a thing to be avoided it was like can we really see our plan all the way through cuz it's decades long yeah or, or are we just like total goofballs for even thinking that any of this is remotely possible and we're going to look back and think that man i'm the worst father of all time and just don't tell our kid that we <laughs> did any of this right i mean that must have been a really hard decision i imagine when that those checks were slid over to you it was hard to look at all those zeros and just think that wow like you said the safety and security and just just taking that early payday and um that would be tough to pass up on for a lot of people. And, you know, you see it all the time in the app world. One that always that pops into my head is that Draw Something app, the Zingabot. It's like for one week, mm -hmm. it was the popular yep. app and everyone was buying it. And mm -hmm. they took that $180 million payout or whatever it is. Yep. And uh, after that, the app kind of faded away. That's and right. that's the thing. With your brand, you never know when something's going to fade away. But you guys had the confidence and the wherewithal to say we're sticking by our guns and we're going to just see this, our plan out. And that's impressive that you guys decided to do that. It was, well, it was very important to uh, get to the point that we're at now. And, and it, there's been many, uh, several attempts to, to get to that point without us needing to be at that point. So we knew that the next steps we wanted to get to, but we didn't, we wanted to make sure that we didn't need to get to some of them. If that makes any sense, it's hard to say. Yeah. But uh, 
but yeah, but even like the you know fast food stuff. Like we did a we did a test uh, in China years ago with a pretty large chain, like a food chain, but it was we knew it was a one-time thing, and it was actually for something that we were doing in South Korea and how the South Korean market has influence on mainland China pop culture. So we we actually said yes to one of these knowing that it probably wouldn't show up on the radar anywhere else. And it wouldn't, I think when we did it, it wouldn't have even been perceived as had being a bad thing. And it was a huge phenomenon, like out of nowhere, it did way better than we thought it would. And then we snapped right back into not right now. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was, <laughs> it was very difficult to, to uh, on one hand have to take the bus from like the South Bay through LAX change to another bus to get to West LA <laughs> But it, but then to say no to like the major, you know, food meal promotion people. Oh, I bet. Uh, where that's all you had to do, and then you could have this. And and I'm really happy that we did stick with it. But it could have easily been a scenario where we said no to those things, and then it just doesn't work anyway. And then, you know, you have to you have to be okay uh, with your decision because you don't want to then live the next five years like why didn't I? You know why. Why did we say no to that? Because that that would also then poison your ability to dust yourself off and do the next thing. Right. They just being like depressed. The shoulda, woulda, coulda state of mind. So for for a lot of young creatives out there, that's a big part of it is planning so far out that the things that could save you don't phase you. Yet at the same time. Um, because it's not doing the big things, but it's also not doing certain small things like designer toys. There were a lot of things going on that a lot of people were doing that I felt like I didn't want us to do either. Uh, that would be my one bit of advice is to have a plan and don't worry so much about whatever you see else going out there, whether it's a giant check put in front of you or or the trendy thing to do at the time. Yeah. Right. Where all, the, all the cool kids are going this way. It's oftentimes an, a, a better idea to, to go the other way yep. also, which is hard when you get, you know, hey, come on, play with us from like the, you know, like your idols or those who others are idolizing at the time. Right. It, you would think, well, why not? But that that can be also as disrupting to your plan as a as a giant kids meal. Right. Right. No, that's great advice because, you know, I know that you and some men because I've stayed in designer toys a lot longer than you did and been a lot more involved. But you chose actually, I remember it was 2000. Well, it's when you're doing the uh, Chocolate Minty with Toy 2R. I remember reading an article that said this is going to be, I don't know if it said retirement or your last foray in designer toys, because after that toy line, Choco and Minty, you're going to have to move on and focus on Ugly Doll. Um, that didn't hold true because I think it was Several years later, we saw you come back with Bossy Bear and Bissy Bear and the Turtle and that horror world. And that's actually my favorite world that you created. I love Bossy Bear and the Bossy Bear toy. And I read the books to my kids. So oh, I'm, I'm hoping to see more Bossy Bear stuff from you. Actually, I just bought the finger puppets from you at, at five points. But um, we're an hour and in now. And I could probably spend several hours just talking to you about the designer toys. But I do want to talk about the Ugly Doll movie that's coming out in May. We just saw the first trailer for it. And... It seems like the Ugly Doll movie has been something we've been hearing about in the works for several years now. And I know at one point, I know it was uh, originally supposed to be Illumination that was going to do the animation. But now it's a, a new company that actually I'm not that familiar with called STX Animation, right? Yes. I mean, even even way before that, it was originally a show at uh, at Cartoon Network. 
Uh, and then it went from morphing from that into we felt like, no, it really needs to be a, a, a film. And then we spent a lot of time uh, at Illumination, and they're just brilliant. Uh, yeah. they're, those guys are, are and they're still good friends of ours. And then a lot of great people that we were then familiar with and got to know formed STX, and then that's where the magic occurred, and we were finally able to able to get that going. It has to be amazing for you, because I know it's been a long time coming, and most things that are pitched or talked about being animations never see the light of day, and finally... It's this is actually happening. We saw the trailer come out in November, and it I have to say it looks great. But at the same time, being a collector of ugly dolls for so long, David, it didn't match what was in my head as what the ugly dolls were. I always thought the ugly dolls were maybe a little more ominous than what the movie oh, yeah. made them out to be. They're very cheerful and very happy, and plus we saw the new introduction of the new the main character Moxie and. I think for a lot of us that have been collecting ugly dolls, we were kind of expecting the story to be more on on Wage or Babo or Ice Bat or something like that. And so that was different. But uh, I understand the need for the change. And I'm looking forward to seeing this movie with my kids because my kids are four and six. They're not familiar with exactly what ugly dolls are yet. And they're mm-hmm. going to have a very different experience now knowing the voices and the story and seeing it on film and acted out, like they're going to have such a different relation with Ugly Dolls than what I have. And I'm looking forward to taking my boys to see it in the theater as well as experiencing it when it comes out as a animated series on Hulu. Yeah, that comes out uh, not not too far after the film's release. Yes, and everything you just said, I am not allowed to say exactly what we had in mind and was hoping or hoping you would. <laughs> I'm pretty I, much not allowed to talk about any of it, but. But yes, that's interesting, your observations about it being different than what you expected, but that now you have kids of that certain age, and that's I'm really happy to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all understandable, and, and I'm just looking forward to see, you know, seeing the movie finally. And you know, and this is at a toy scene. We've heard of several different people uh, that, we were, that we're all familiar with that had movie deals. We've heard rumblings of Kid Robot possibly getting a movie. Uh, we definitely know that Leslie Levings is working with Bad Robot on her Beastly's being an animated film, but you're the first one to hit the big screen, so congrats on that. Thank you very much. I mean, yeah, I, uh, what one thing we've learned uh, through this process is that um, those projects that you read about that but then don't see, even to get that far, it's a miracle. Like, that is a one-in-a-billion-time chance of a lifetime. And I didn't really realize that until having gone through that, I was completely not familiar with that that world at all. And uh, m- my first network-related TV motion picture meeting ever was with uh, Linda Siminski after she saw our Giant Robot article. And she's she was at Cartoon Network, uh, but then quickly moved on to, I think she's the lead at PBS uh, and still is. And and she, she had some some incredible words for me, like really wise words and advice that I remembered every single word of it. And I'm so happy and grateful that she actually took the time to sit down and and give me this like hour of her time because it it really helped me navigate those waters. And we're just really excited. Yeah, it's amazing. Now that's awesome. And what is your role today with the Pretty Ugly Company? Uh, I am these days spending a lot of my time in Asia, uh, specifically, well, you know, we moved to South Korea in, well, we, we lived there for four years, like in, from like 2006. Uh, and then in 2014, we moved back and we've been there ever since, even though right now I'm in Texas, uh, just because the, the movie studio is in Los Angeles, but Real FX is, is here in Dallas. 
But uh, we're we're officially still in South Korea, and my role has been mostly focused on uh, South Korea and and in Japan. Um, two reasons, just like for the Ugly Doll, for Ugly Doll's future, I see things happening there that are very long term plays that I feel like I that we've been spending like ever since you saw the Coca Cola figures come out from Japan back in 2004, five mm-hmm. something around there. Since then, uh, Japan's been a major focus of mine, and, but it's been a very long-term focus where I realized to get it right, I'm, it's really important to not, uh, you know, Shin from uh, Devil Robots said it the first day I met him, and that guy's like a, a brother from another mother now, but, but back then when I was just so thrilled to even just having met him, he, he right away, we were at his, uh, uh, one of their Devil Robots uh, openings, and he said, David, don't be number one. Number two is okay, but never, never be number one. And I, I never, I, I, I bothered him about what that actually meant later. And being so paranoid, I was like, I'm, I, uh, if we get to 101, <laughs> I'd be really, really happy. But like, what did he actually mean by that? I don't think he actually meant number, like, so after picking his brain uh, a little more on our second ever meeting, I realized that I needed to essentially spend 20 or 30 years on getting Japan right. Wow. Um, and we're still, I still feel like I'm just dipping my toe in there. And and having a lot of fun also with the getting back into making uh, soft vinyl figures. And uh, we we did the Taipei Toy Festival with Don. We we had a booth right next to each other. And then our, our the stuff, the recent stuff that we did with Bossy Bear and, and uh, some in Spider-Boom are, were at Don's booth at the Decon. Yeah, so, I picked them up. Right, I love them having a good time with that. But at the same time, I've been, so I would spend like three weeks in Korea and then about a week, every, then every three weeks I'd go to Tokyo for a week or uh, Kyoto to look at like uh, sourcing materials for what we want to do in the future or just visiting other parts of the country, but mostly Tokyo to 90% studying and then 10% just slow building for the far future. Really? Wow. I never really thought about having to individually focus on countries, but hearing it, it makes absolute sense. I mean, the world's a gigantic place and everywhere is different. So you really need to get in there and really learn what makes each one tick. Uh, so that's interesting. But I want to circle back and talk about the movie more. And so Hasbro is doing the toys for the movie. They have the entire license. And I imagine there's going to be a ton of neat stuff coming out that we can look forward to. Hasbro, seriously, like that's, I mean, I, I, I can I can only say how happy and excited I am uh, on on so many levels, but and it kills me that I can't say. It. But also, I but also I'm so excited for this, you know, the the uh, the summer, so everybody can can finally see. They're 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 as brilliant and more. Uh, like, wow. You know, I I mean, my my our our love is mostly uh, to be very honest. Our love, a lot of what we love is mass market, right? Like yeah. from Japan, I mean. There's no real mass market. There's the stuff that ends up at Aeon Mall in the like the regular toy store, right? Yeah. They're, they have Toys R Us, but actually that's not really like there's no mass market, mass market. There's specialty meaning like you're at like few many in Shinjuku is specialty in Japan. Mm-hmm. And Manabu is like the greatest shepherd and and kind of like at bringing all the creatives together and he runs pop box out of all the 120 loft locations which is like a crucial like that's like i could go on for three more hours just about what's going on at loft i think that's designer toys like what well, well, uh uh bridge ship house 
uh, you know, what um, Kaori Hinata is doing, um, uh, Teresa Chiba. Like well, the, you, you these, do that whole article on the, the top 13 women you think that are um, just basically creating revenue on the, yeah. uh, based, based on their own fan bases. They're not the the mainstream corporate world or the IP business maybe hasn't taken notice of them yet, but they are absolutely well, crushing they, it. I think that is the mainstream. I think that is designer toys for me. Like for me, that is the scene. And like, I'm happy for super plastic and the other stuff is amazing. Right. Yeah. And there, there's like crossover and, and they love each other. There's love from across the way, but I feel like that's the, like even, even the old guys like Dehara, like, the, the where his career is right now and watching that grow from the 90s until now and how now he has this massive following in China and and all around uh, Asia. Mm-hmm. I feel like this has been the year for creator toys, right? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think a lot of it are these these young women coming from Japan, some from Korea. Our friend Kilman, who was working at the Ugly Doll store right in um in Seoul years ago, is now like she's she's way beyond i mean it's just incredible to watch really and you know and they get it like i um uh, uh, uh ayako who's uh you know uomo right yep uomo. <laughs> uh like when you go into to her store it's not a toy place even it's like she gets it man that it's like the ceramic cups and the soap and the way it's merchandised and the feeling and the soul. It's like when you walk in a giant robot for the first time and realize that it's a physical embodiment of the magazine, mm-hmm. that her little shop and the cafe, it's just this beautiful thing to experience. And she so totally gets it that it's she's not even really a toy creator, that she's just a creator mm-hmm. and that she has her own world. And I think that's going to be huge. I think it's already huge. I think the fact that even one human being figured it out the way she did is phenomenal. I would love to send creators from all over the world to look at that. It's not just the figures and, and toys, really. It's the little universes that these creators come up with that are their own, that exist in consumer culture and in pop culture. And it's not a sellout and it's not anything except fantastical. And it, it's so incredible to me that these things exist right now. It's like really the best time to be alive because of these things happening. Like Bridge Ship House, is she a toy designer? Is she even in the art toy category? She's brilliant. And you see what she's uh, accomplished so far in, in such a short time. And it's it's mind boggling. So I'm, I'm very, very excited by, and I don't know if it's because I just spent the most time there and so I see it, but I don't think so because then you go to the Taipei Toy Festival and all these shows and these crowds, Comic-Con sized crowds, but they're only after one thing. One booth, yeah. Comic-Con, everyone's after their own different stuff. Mm-hmm. But when all of a sudden all these people are after this these few, <laughs> right? These few uh, tribe leaders. It's, it's, That's the it's, thing we talk about all the time on the podcast. None of us have ever been over to Asia to experience the artists that you're talking about and seeing what's going on at the conventions there firsthand. We've we've talked to Data Dub and you know other people who have been to the conventions and experienced it, but we haven't experienced it ourselves. So it's, it's great to hear it through your eyes. And as well as one thing we were talking about last week is another thing that a lot of the Asia artists tend to do is they really focus on a few of their main characters and just really brand and just branch out from that few characters versus here in the States. It seems like 
people make small resin runs and they just they jump all over the place versus really focusing on that brand building and it seems like asia and the asian artists are really fantastic at that brand building uh it's they're fantastic at being focused on yes brand building is a great way to put it absolutely and just being really patient like if you look at how takuji or a t9g right has has been around and toma and these guys are not out of nowhere but then they're consistent and you can see now when you look back and that's another reason for wanting to have the archives as don data dub <laughs> puts it is because you can actually it would be great to track their careers and their history it would be such like if i were 12 and i'm just getting into this and i discover where Toma came from or where Dihara came from or where Wamao started and to, to be able to track that process and to even get a 5% glimpse into the thought process is, is, would be fantastic for young people to be able to, to access that. Despite all this uh, access to information, it's funny how a lot of that is still a very real world have to go see for yourself. No, I absolutely agree with all of that. It's, you know, having done this podcast for as long as I have, I've experienced how difficult it is to find information and research on so many artists and toys out there. So I agree with all that. And that's one reason that we, we do do this because we want to help get the information out there. But um, so moving on, I want to talk to you about what do you think about artists that are kind of creating their own original thing, but occasionally having to uh, sprinkle the portfolio with some fan art or working with a license to get more sure. attention on their what they're doing i think that it depends like uh, our good friend graflex from south korea right graflex g-r-a-f-f-l-e-x mm -hmm. for example he's doing this fantastic uh collaboration with mickey mouse for the 90th anniversary right yes and on one hand you can see the same graphics from the 90th anniversary style guide at target and and these places and and that which i think is wonderful so is that is that good i think for him for where he is and for what he's doing with it perfect i think it depends on the person and the long term plan and you can see with these artists from south korea especially with these artists coming out of japan and and other parts of asia that they're in it for this very long haul and so when you see a decision that they've made, it's something that you can really study and, and track. The temptation, I think, for younger people, perhaps, uh, if you're starting out, to suddenly be recognized by a, a larger company or a larger existing character, it can be tempting. I completely understand how that could be. Uh, like if you, you perceive yourself as being nowhere or unseen, and all of a sudden you you do something that gets the attention of somebody at one of these larger companies it's it can be tempting mm -hmm. and it can also be fine it can also be the thing that and you know results in other people knowing about you now and don't it, there's no right or wrong answer i think it depends on who you are where you are what your long-term goal is i think what wama is doing and what she like what bridge ship house and the mostly uh, young ladies coming out of Japan, some, some Korea, more so than what I see coming out of Hong Kong and other parts of Asia. And here's where my old man opinion starts to kick in. But, but <laughs> what, what they're doing and having had the opportunity to see them at it for that long and to be able to sit down with them for this many years and to kind of pick their brain, they are massive. Like, that's massive. When you think of, like, Rila Kuma from Sanex, that's massive. Like, that's... We remember when they got their first window at Kittyland. We were we were there when it was set up. 
we saw what that led to. And they're really super intelligent and smart. And of course, the product is adorable and everyone loves it. And But that's not, to me, that's not even the same world. It's characters, but it's not really the same thing as what Omar's doing. In fact, what she's doing, I think, in the future is going to be its own classification that everyone will aspire to that. Or you do the SanX model or the Hello Kitty model or the designer toy model. It's, they're completely different things, I think. And it's been really interesting to watch this happen. I think it's being mistaken for being designer toys sometimes by some. And it's great that there's crossover, that those who love toys and just love things that look cool, they gravitate to those things, obviously, because they're really amazing. <laughs> but I can kind of see, see a longer term play uh, in motion here. And it's brilliant. And I'm just so happy for them because I met many of them almost 20 years ago. And to watch this thing grow and for them to just never complain about a thing and and to like silently just, you know, I know how I know how you know how hard it is. Right. To maintain just like living while accomplishing these things in general is a feat on its own. And to just go about it in this stoic way for that long and to achieve what they where they are right now. And I have this funny feeling about where it's going to go. And I see them not getting distracted by what I see happening out of, say, Hong Kong and other uh, places, mm -hmm. participating and being grateful, but not being distracted by it. It's very interesting. And I, I'm, I'm like, I love it. I just love this whole thing. <laughs> what, really do, fun. what is the funny feeling of where you think they're going to go? And what do you think is happening in Hong Kong and, the, and the, some of the other countries you mentioned? I'm not going to say, but I do see a lot of similarities to what I saw coming out of um, Hong Kong and 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 the uh, like Singapore and surrounding area um, when like Toy 2R blew up, right? Yeah. Like uh, I do see some funny patterns and repeating themes as far as the approach and how there's more like big companies that sort of perceived to be large umbrellas that make these big statements. And it, that's fun too, by the way. And a lot of people love it. And I think it's fantastic that a lot of people love it because it makes everybody excited for any of this. And any any excitement that can be generated is is all good. It's just interesting to watch. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not even a pattern. Maybe they're up to something that then there's an aha moment that I didn't even think of most likely is what's actually happening. But uh, it's interesting to watch for sure. No, it's exciting. As someone who's so tapped into these sort of things, it's the fact that you're excited about what's going on over there. And just that's exciting to me. And I'm excited to see where things go in a few years. It's cool. It's been, it's been fun to watch, man. It's amazing. So, um, okay. So you're talking about devil robots. I have a question to ask you a couple of years ago, you did cat bat motors with them. It was a collaboration piece and I love that. And they were oh, just yeah. uh small run resin offerings. Is there going to be any, any potential future for a little more mass market? Oh, uh, well, I hope we get to do more. Uh, I've been very close to devil robots for years and years, and it's always been a, a dream of mine to actually finally get to work together. And it was the idea, uh, there was a little group in Korea uh, called Riri Deli. They had a little store in Seoul and they were kind of like the big supporters of creator toys in Korea at the time. This was maybe in 2014, 15. And there's a show that's been going on every May since uh, 2014 in Korea called the Art Toy Culture yes. Show. The first one was off the charts, incredible. It's kind of changed every year since then. And I haven't been to the last couple, but the idea was that we would show up at this show with this kind of totally new collaboration idea that was 
you know, we, we would just do a straight up Devil Robots and I would just go back and forth, create something completely new. And it was for that show. So we had the very limited number of those those sculptures. And then we had a bunch of pins and postcards and um, I think various types of pins and maybe even a keychain. I don't I don't quite recall. Mm-hmm. And but it, but that was it. It was only supposed to be that one. Like what you saw was that's all it was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, I think we, we did want to keep it going, but right then was when our work on the actual Ugly Doll movie started. We knew that we weren't going to be able to do anything, <laughs> anything at all for, for years, right? right that right. really was going to take all of our time. So uh, probably much to their frustration because I know we all wanted to keep it going. And I have to, once I'm all clear, go back to them and and there there there's got to be more because i i really do love that that so do i and i hope that you do revisit it because i would like to own some of them and um get my hands on them but uh david one thing i've always appreciated about you is i think a lot of people would have settled and been perfectly happy and content with just retiring on ugly doll but you've always been passionate and creative minded that you have other things going on like i mentioned the bossy bear publications and you mentioned little bony earlier and uh cap at motors i just mentioned so it's like you've always wanted to work on other things as well like you're you're diversifying yourself and i've always enjoyed that and it's been great seeing you hit the convention scene again and recently you just did a little trio of sufubi figures with bossy bear turtle and spider bear so i just enjoyed uh watching everything you do thank you yes we well because we've just been so consumed like even when we did the bossy bear books and uh the even before that the the little bony show we did had an extensive licensing program in japan for a couple of years um uh, Sunmin did a Spider Boom plush with first Critter Box, and then with I think it's the rarest Critter Box released item there is. I think, I think Giant Robot got like a box of twelve, and then that was it. So we have some that have the Critter Box logo, and then we have some that are pretty good, also that are pretty pretty much the same that are from um, Toy Two R released them for the next couple of years. Yeah, we've we've always wanted to continue those. It's just that Ugly Doll always took up. Night, you know, all of our time and any any free time always went to our kids. So those other guys kind of just had to wait. And now that we are where we are now, we are pretty much every day from 3.30 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. in the gym. And then from 4.45 uh, until it's time to wake everybody up, we are cooking, you know, that old stuff to be able to tell more stories. Mm-hmm. So we hope to be able to show off what we're cooking at least a little bit of it pretty soon maybe over the maybe by by summertime well i'm interested i'm intrigued and i am patiently waiting for whatever that's going to be but you just mentioned that your guys are also parents and you have kids and so what's it like raising kids in this environment i know Mm. recently you told me that your daughter doesn't watch tv at all is that when the hulu series comes out is she gonna watch it oh yeah if she's if she if she's interested (laughs) (laughs) Does she love the, the ugly universe? We have a five-year-old boy, and he's super into uh, you know Lego and and whatever you find at, at the toy store uh, in Korea. The Target is like Emart, but it's like the it's like the Korean Target, it's kind of the same thing. He already knows the difference between Tomika diecast cars and Hot Wheels. <laughs> he doesn't uh, mix them. He separates Tomika and Hot Wheels. Don't you know? Don't mix. They don't mix. Wow. He, he's very all about Tomika diecast cars and and Lego. Uh, but our daughter is like a was just super into drawing and then and then drawing and reading and never really was interested. It, we didn't really even try to keep her from television so much as she's just not interested in things that are 
on any sort of screen, wow. uh, which that'll change soon, I'm very sure. So <laughs> as long as we could, you know, we wanted to maintain that as long as that was something that was possible. <laughs> but but it, it wasn't, we weren't super, I just didn't have time. We didn't have time to have the TV on. Like most of my video games are now shrink-wrapped retro games, right? Yeah. So I just, like every time there was a new Zelda or Animal Crossing or the major titles, I, I would grab them and then maybe get to the menu screen and then just leave them on in the background for the music. And I'm like, oh, uh-huh. but then that's it. I never got further. They're all there. I have I have three Nintendo Switches that have all the stuff downloaded on it. And I'll charge them sometimes so they don't die, but I don't I don't get to play. So it's my future retro collection. <laughs> I'll work and no play, but I'm sure one day you'll get around to all this stuff. There, yeah, I, this is a real story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, everything that you're doing is fantastic. I'm on the edge of my seat waiting for what you have cooking with Hasbro. I know I'm going to be dropping a lot of money uh, in the in the coming months. Um, congratulations on the on the movie deal and the Hulu and everything that's going on. And uh, thanks for coming on and joining us. Thank you very much, really, uh, and and thanks so much for uh, being there since the beginning. It, I really appreciate it because it was that. You know, we would find the little things on the message boards here and there that were just enough to keep us going. We felt like, okay, there's like at least eight people out there who care, so we got to keep going. Like <laughs> that really made a big difference. So thank you. You you, you just can't even know. Dude, thanks for having me. On. No, thank you for coming on, David. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I'm glad that we were finally able to make this happen, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to uh, meet at a convention sometime. But until then, I'm looking forward to taking my kids to see the movies and experiencing that through their eyes, and I'm sure they'll become just as big a fan as yours as I am. But um, have yourself a fantastic 2019, David. Yeah, same to you. All Thanks right. again. I right. appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a good, have a good one. Take care. Right. Bye. Well, that was a fun talk with David. If you aren't following David on social media, I highly suggest you do so. You can find him as David Horvath pretty much anywhere, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Otherwise, be sure to go to UglyDolls.com or follow UglyDolls on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Marsham Toy Hour. We do this every week, not because we have to, but because we want to. So until our next transmission, we're signing off. Bye. Bye.